Folks, we're sponsored today by Donors Trust, the tax-friendly way to preserve your charitable giving. In times of crisis, those with a giving spirit and a desire to build up civil society find ways to be helpful. And that's when it's good to have a charitable resource ready to deploy when they're needed most. Donors Trust offers donor-advised funds or giving accounts. You can use these funds as your own charitable investment account and manage your charitable giving in a way that's smart, tax-advantaged, aligned with your values, and private. Donors Trust clients are using their funds to support charities helping their local communities while also using their giving account to simultaneously support think tanks and liberty-minded organizations that believe our constitutional rights shouldn't get lost in a time of emergency. Now is the time to take a closer look at Donors Trust and join their community of liberty-minded donors by opening a donor-advised fund. Go to DonorsTrust.org slash JustNews for the ultimate survival guide to charitable giving and learn how a donor advised fund can preserve your ability to give to the charities you love. That's DonorsTrust.org slash Just News. Hello and welcome to the Victor Davis Hanson Show. This is the weekend edition and we try to do something a little bit different usually. So we're going to look at, since it's Christmas, this is our Christmas weekend edition and we're going to look at the New Testament, particularly the Gospels. Uh, Dr. Hansen has taught the Gospels and has read them in Greek, so I thought we could look at the Gospels from the point of view of such a scholar. So we will be headed for that, but we're going to look at a few news stories first because we like to finish up the day in the news stories. So we will start there. Stay with us, and we'll be right back after these messages. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome back to the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor is the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow in Military History and Classics at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. Victor has a website, victorhanson.com. Please come join us there. We have a subscription for $5 a month or for $50 a year, and you get all of the VDH Ultra material the website does have lots of other uh, material, articles, and podcasts that are, of course, free because they're published elsewhere. So it is a repository of just about all of Victor's work. I, I suppose one or two things escapes us, but it's definitely a great website to tap into. So we'll welcome everybody. Well, Victor, there's lots going on today. Maybe the first thing I think you might want to talk about is 
Dr. Claudine Gay apparently has more plagiarism that has been found. This is really egregious and really kind of depressing, I think, um, that she's gotten away with so much um, taking of other people's work. And I was wondering, I know you had a few more things you wanted to say about that. Well, I think now of her 11 articles with the latest disclosure, she's up to 60% of everything she's written has borrowed language. What's the word they use for it? Duplicative. Duplicative language. So they don't use the word plagiarism for her. They kick people out otherwise and do call them plagiarists, but not her. Yeah, I guess this is the age of the great plagiarist Joe Biden that has normalized plagiarism. But there's accusations she plagiarized her Ph.D. thesis parts of it. So from the very beginning, and I mentioned on the earlier podcast that when I first got to Hoover, she was up for tenure at the political science department with four articles, which no one ever gives tenure for, for four articles at supposedly an elite university, but she got it. So what I'm getting at is she's made a career of two things. One, getting special treatment on the basis of her race and gender not accorded to other people. And two, serially, insidiously accusing institutions and people of being racist or sexist. And that is the trajectory that the DEI candidate has today. You have to do two things. You have to accuse people 24-7 of being racist or sexist, homophobe, transphobe, and then you have to be in that protected class as a victim. Do that, and you can plagiarize. You can tell the world that if you call for the destruction of Israel or the destruction of the Jewish people at Harvard, there's going to be no consequences. And that's what she's done. And, you know, Harvard... 17% in early applications, usually early applications, you know, applications for early admittance, those are the more motivated or the stronger candidates who feel that their dossiers are so strong in the old days before the rejection of the SAT or the abolition of it. Those were the people who got the perfect SAT scores or near perfect, the perfect GPA, and they just wanted to get it over with and get their admission. 17% dropped? And so she is lording over the veritable destruction of Harvard University. Like Yale, about 80% of the people get A's, and they have to get A's because they are admitted uh, with qualifications that will not allow them to do the work as it has been expected institutionalized until about five years ago. So you get a whole new group of students who have never taken the SAT test, their GPA, you don't, know how, you don't know how to evaluate it, and the essay, and their race and gender. And then you expect them to do the, the traditional work that you've, you bragged about was so difficult? No, no, you've, made, you've inflated your grades. And the epitome of that, or the, I guess the icon, the icon of that would be the president of Harvard herself, who can't meet the standards that she applies to students. If she was a student and she had duplicative language or emulative language, she would be kicked out or put on suspension, guaranteed. And so everybody knows that. And we know that Larry Summers was fired for suggesting there were biological differences between men and women that might account for cultural differences that might account. 
in the proportional underrepresentation of women in physics and math. We know the Stanford president was fired for enhancing an illustration that went too far in suggesting this co-authored scientific paper's conclusions were conclusive. And we know the South Carolina president, university, was fired for what lifting two paragraphs in a graduation speech, but not Claudine Gay, who says that she's been singled out when we know that Liz McGill, who was next to her, was fired for saying the same thing as a white woman. I think everybody's sick of this. They're just sick of it. And as I said earlier, it's going to go Bud Light, Disney, uh, Target very quickly. Because once we're into the third year of this post-George Floyd reparations as far as retention, tenure, admissions, And these people are going to start to come out into the workplace. And they already have because it started a little bit earlier, but not to the same intensity. And employers and people in the general public are going to see these people of all different races, all different genders. And they're not qualified to be or they're qualified to be at the new Harvard, but they're not elites. And yet they're going to expect elite treatment. And people are going to say, you know what? If I ask you what Shakespeare is, you don't even know three plays. If I say River to the Sea, you can't tell me where the Jordan River is. If I ask you what's the Pythagorean theory, you don't know. If I ask you to distinguish a Doric, Ionic, or Corinthian column, you can't do it. You don't know anything except these therapeutic studies courses. And so she's she's reigning over the destruction of the Ivy League. She really is. She doesn't even know it. It's kind of like... Declan Maloney, right? He was reigning over the destruction of America's most popular bear, and he didn't even know it, mm-hmm. what he was doing. Yeah. And yet he destroyed that brand. Don't you think that the board is hoping that she'll, she'll step down? But I have a feeling she's I don't think on that. the chessboard. She's not going to move. <laughs> no, because they know that if she does not step down, the only people are going to complain are a few alumni and they have a $50 billion endowment, so they don't need to raise another penny the rest of their lives. And maybe they'll say something, but if they do fire her or she steps down, you've got the Middle Eastern students, you've got the DEI students, you've got the left-wing socialist students, you've got the the media, you've got the squad, you got all of those people. That's what they're scared of. When they were testifying, that was the one thing they were scared of. They thought, you know what? I will say or concede anything except even the slightest smidgen of an attack on DEI. So when they asked me about normalizing hatred of Jews or the destruction of Israel, I don't care. I can say that. I can say that it depends on the context. It's not necessarily a bad thing to say at at Harvard. But if somebody asked me, would you say that about black? uh, Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to. I'm not going to be fired. So they know they put their finger in the air and they know where the power is and they make the necessary adjustments. So she's going to stay in it just to protect that exclusive group of people that are there. It's not not even exclusive anymore. It's the majority. If you look at the class that's coming in at Stanford, it's 20 percent white and the majority are DEI people and the faculty that are hired are DEI. It's it's the strangest thing in the world that. We've created this mythology that the last 30 years there hasn't been something called affirmative action. I can remember 
I think it was 1980. I'll be very candid. I had a PhD at 25 and a half. And I went to, and I was about the only military historian in the United States. And I, there was a great job at the U.S. Naval Academy for a classical military historian. And I applied. I did a great job, I thought. They asked me dozens of questions. Greece and Rome culture, history, language. And then I remember this officer coming over and he said, you know, I, I don't, you did a very good job and we'd like to hire you, but we're not going to hire you. We're sorry. We're going to hire a woman. It's just the way it is. And I said, are you going to resign because you're a, a white male? And he said, no, 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 no. What we have to. So don't feel bad, but you're not going to get this job. And I went there, you know, um, 22 or three years later, and it was still the same. So this has been going on for 45 to 50 years. Yes. But not in the repertory and the idea that it's not ga- gauged to proportional representation anymore. Yeah. It's we're going to have over-representation to make up for supposed path pathologies. Yeah. And basically the subtext is if you want to get down to the nitty gritty, these universities are saying... We don't want one working class white male, not one, because if we get down to 20 or 30 percent whites and we have 55 percent women, we're down to about nine to 15 percent whites male. And the only people we can accommodate are the 10 million dollar donors and some athletes and the children of deans and provosts and full professors. And there's no room for you guys from Missouri who are meritocratic. Just don't even apply. That's the message. Yeah. Well, let's turn now to um, Israel. And I know that the um, Israelis are getting a lot of pressure from our administration not to or to hold back. Do you think they are holding back or how do you think the war is going in Israel? I think they're taking a lot more casualties than they need to. Yeah. yeah, I think they are. They're not doing what we did in Fallujah. They're dropping leaflets. They're texting. They're being very careful what they do. But who are they fighting against? They're fighting against people, and they've killed about 8,000 of them, that don't wear uniforms, that blend in with the population, that are shielded by the population, whether voluntarily or by coercion. They're, under, they're tunneled in a subterranean labyrinth multi-billion dollar complex and they're under mosques, hospitals and schools and they've got a toady press and disinformation officers in Hamas like we know now that the head of one of the largest hospitals who's been telling us about all of the statistics on deaths is a Hamas operative and Hamas was really running the hospital so yeah I mean they're going into the gates of hell they're going into the ninth level of the inferno are they getting the job done? And they are. They, they do. I think they're about 60% done with destroying the high echelon, the labyrinth, and the complex beneath the city. I think they're filling it full of water. That'll take a couple of months. And the next big step is they've got to go after the people in Qatar and Beirut who are probably fleeing to Turkey for asylum. Yeah. To our stalwart, loyal NATO ally under Mr. Erdogan who said he would like to send missiles into Gaza and to attack the IDF after he had said a year ago that he wanted to send missiles in to kill the Greeks 
uh, in Athens after another year, he said that the Armenians should be dealt with in the way that his Turkish grandfathers dealt with them. Yeah. Make the necessary conclusions. That means a Holocaust. Why that scoundrel is even in NATO, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, last topic that um, we've been, or that this, of this week, sorry. Last topic of this week, um, there's more decadence going on in Jill Biden's, among Jill Biden's staffers. And I was wondering. Decadence, that's a value judgment. Decadence, (laughs) you mean a deviation from the norms? Perversity, I don't know. You say Mr. De La Rosa doesn't have a right as a gay man to go through three security checkpoints uh, into a off-limits area of the Spanish Intercontinental Hotel because it's under tight security because he is the press secretary for Jill Biden, the wife of the president of the United States. And he must, he must obey certain security clearances so he doesn't talk or breach secrecy that might affect the security of the United States in these NATO discussions. Wait, but didn't he bring a person with him that he just met? Yeah, he picked up a guy. He said, well, we had tapas at a restaurant. It was going well. And I, <laughs> I meant to, it wasn't on an app. I met him in person. So I met a guy and I wanted to have a one night and I almost got through. I got through two of the three checkpoints. And then they said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm bringing my gay pickup. Are you a homophobe? And they said, sorry, he's not cleared. And he did it, they said, twice. And he said only once. And then he started leaking. And why did all this come out now? That was in 2022. Uh, oh, really? I yes. thought it was just this week. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay. It came out now because he was a nobody, a nothing burger, and he thought he would inflate like Anonymous did his credentials. So he went on MSNBC and he went on CNN after he was fired and he talked about his intimate knowledge of the first family and Ashley Biden had COVID and the cat did this and they got angry at him. So they said, you know what, that SOB is exaggerating his role in in the White House and he's disclosing things that are embarrassing to us. So we're just going to leak and call up a couple of reporters and tell us why we tell him why we fired him. And so I guess your point is you asked me about embarrassing. So the connection is that we had the (laughs) we discussed last time the Hollywood party where those guys, some of them were allegedly trans dancers in the White House at Christmas as if it was a carnival at Halloween. And then we we had the guys you said that took the oath with the pornographic gay books instead of the Bible. And we had we mentioned that at the White House party, the topless uh, trans. Yeah, trans, he was very proud of his bought press. Pressed, he yeah. was. They weren't his. They were somebody give it, gave them to him, either through implants or hormones. <laughs> I think they were implants. And then we forgot Mr. Sam Brinton. Remember him? Oh, yeah. The lipstick, the bald head, the mustache, the dress, the serial thief that would steal clothes from people and then he would lie about he would lie about oh i just picked it up i I opened it up and there's a bunch of dresses how did that happen yeah what why did they why did they all collect in this administration could it be one of two reasons one of three reasons they have made it clear that they just they want to destroy norms as we know it and so that attracts a lot of people (laughs) i'm being facetious but i'll throw it out there choice too that people who 
have deviant behavior look at the first family and they think, wait a minute, didn't Joe Biden walk around naked and scare uh, Secret Service agents when he was vice president? Yeah, I remember that. Didn't Ashley lose her diary and said that she took showers too long with her dad? Yeah, I remember that. Didn't Hunter take pictures of his own phallus and coke with a hooker? Yeah, I remember that. Didn't Frank Biden, the presidential brother, take selfies of him in full nude uh, photos? And um, they ended up on a gay porn? Yeah, I remember that. Hey, I want to join that group. <laughs> I, I like to do that stuff. I liked it. Didn't they have a, at Easter, they had a, uh, an Easter bunny that was twerking? Yeah. yeah. Yes. They did. That I remember so that. Weird. Yes. Yeah. So they all. So there. The the subtext was if you've got hatred of American norms, the you know the heterosexual traditional family with its bourgeoisie taste and its two point two kids and its suburban three car garage and the rat race, and you come to us, and we are where it's at. <laughs> And that's sort of what they said. And we're going to unite the country. That's what we're going to do. No more Donald Trump. We're going to unite the country under these values. Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, all right, Victor. Well, let's go oh, wait. ahead. One thing oh. he said, I remember he said one thing. He said, it's not as bad as the Secret Service. <laughs> and what he meant was, you remember under Obama, the Secret Service was always getting arrested for partying, prostitution, drunk, because Obama had all these hires that had not been vetted. Well, he's saying they did it. So yeah. we just we just followed in their footsteps. Yeah. You know, when you were talking about it, I was remembering the South American incident yeah, where those guys, that was the big one where they, I don't know what they did. They were drunk. They were seeing and hookers and they had hookers, wild parties and they were drunk. <laughs> and, you know, it's... The usual debauchery of an administration. <laughs> well, the same thing in the military. They had a, an officer who, they there's some kind of gay group and they dress up as, they put... Um, canine type of costumes on and they have a club and this is in the military and then they wonder why they're 40,000 recruits short um, you don't want to join yeah. why wouldn't you want to join this is the kind of stuff we do it's great why wouldn't you want to join oh you think that we're hunting out just because we said we're hunting out white rage supremacy and privilege hmm who cares if you got vaccinated, if you had COVID three times, you've got to get vaccinated or you're out. Is yeah. that why you're not? They, they're just, every time I talk about this, I get some letter from somebody in the military. It's CC'd usually. Mr. Anson, I don't want to break the news to you, but you're totally erroneous. There is a reason why people are not joining the army. It's because they're obese. And we're in dire competition with the private sector with low unemployment. Some of them are taking drugs. Some of them are in gangs. So we don't have the pool that we used to. Has nothing to do with the fact that we are woke and we go after certain demographics that are not DEI. Okay, if you want to believe that, fine. Yeah, sure. But you, all you have to do is look at the demographics that you keep, not me, and see which particular group has not been enlisting as in the past and it tends to be white males from rural and southern states yeah case made let's go ahead and stop there and um for take have a few messages and then we'll come back and talk about the new testament for our christmas episode stay with us and we'll be back 
VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome back. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show, and Victor has spent 20 years teaching, and part of that time was spent teaching especially the Gospel of John in Greek. Um, But he has read the entire thing in Greek, and so I'm kind of excited to learn about the Gospels from a a scholar's point of view, Victor. And what what are we supposed to think about them, and how are we supposed to understand these Gospels, and when were they written, and all that kind of stuff? Go ahead, let us know. Well, I could... I mean, that's a, I'm not, I'm a classical scholar, not a biblical scholar, but I uh, have read the New Testament several times in Greek and the the Apocrypha, and I've read, my favorite is Revelations, I confess, although it's very difficult to read. But uh, I taught at Cal State and other places uh, the New Testament, and especially the Gospel John. And so there were all these uh, in the period after Jesus' death, roughly from, I don't know, 50, 60 A.D. all the way into the 200s. There were competing uh, narratives, and some of them were based on an oral tradition. Because everybody thought Jesus was coming back to life. So they felt no reason, you know what I mean, to chronicle his life. They thought any day he would be back on earth. So most of it was an oral tradition. So by the time people figured out that he wasn't coming back or had not coming back or that people who said they were Jesus uh, and had been resurrected were not, they began systematically to write down what they remembered either. And these are people who were probably not alive during Jesus's life. So they were they were dealing with either a mysterious, I don't know why, I can't remember, it was Q or something. It was a unknown body of literature that doesn't exist now, but they had access. And we know they had access to it because in the four Gospels there, except for John, there's similar passages that must have come from an original, which we lost, originals. And so there were all these competing Gospels. There's the Gospel of Judas. I think when I saw the 30 coins, you know, one of those weird episodes in that Spanish horror movie? Yeah. They were talking about Judas as being sort of the savior of Christianity. I think the Satan was saying that. And the idea was that, and I think that came from the gospel of Judas, because I have read that. And it's, the argument is sort of, if I hadn't have tested Jesus and I hadn't betrayed him, then he might not have been crucified. And if he hadn't have been crucified, then he wouldn't have suffered for your sins and have forgiven. And therefore, I'm really to be praised. (laughs) Okay, got it. And I think they picked up on that gospel. They have little suggestions of that in that 
that series, which I kind of like. But there's four of them that were canonized by the first century, and the, the most uh, authoritative of the early one is Mark. And uh, then Matthew and Luke are based on Mark, and I think they're called, uh, they have a word for it, the soon, synoptic tradition. And they have themes about, we're going to tell the story of his incomplete life, where he was born, uh, you know, the Gospel of Luke. The whole world was to be taxed by Caesar Augustus, the, ma the baby and the man, all it goes yeah. through the life. And then there are the miracles. And the miracles are to show you in those gospels that he has supernatural powers and only God could, uh, only a person who was acting through God or with God or by God's order could do those things. And Mark is, as I remember, around 60, 65 A.D., the Neronian age during the persecution. And these are written in somewhere in Eastern Mediterranean by people who either were pretty good writers, but probably Aramaic speakers, but they wrote fluently in Greece. And we don't know these names. These names were attached to these gospels, not at the time they were written, probably. And then Mark, uh, Mark and Luke then follow in that tradition. Of all of the four, uh, the most beautifully written is Luke. It's it's uh, it's more of a classical Greek, and it's it's kind of difficult. Mark and Matthew are kind of difficult. There's certain um, word the word order um, they don't repeat vocabulary, uh, and they follow classical rules of using the optative and subjunctive, etc., in primary and, and past sequence. John is a whole different story. That was the last one. I think uh, Luke and, and um, Matthew were written around 90 or 80 and maybe earlier, 75. And then John is 100, 110. And we don't know who that John is. I don't think it's John the Apostle because when you read it, he, there, there's no intimacy implied that he knows these people personally. And I don't think it's John the Divine, the author of Revelations. So it's, it's, a, it's there was kind of a, I think they have a word for it, Johannine, a Johnian sect of people who were followers of the Apostle John. And out of that group, they sort of collectively wrote something, then they applied the name John to it. But it's very different. It's uh, very, it's the easiest Greek. And I don't mean easy because it's not good Greek. It's just, and most Greek is, but not always. It's subject, verb, predicate, and it repeats vocabulary. So you can read the Gospel of John with a Greek vocabulary of about 1,500 words, maybe even less. And it's very rare into past sequence, so there's not a lot of optatives. After, the main verb is in the aorist or past tense. You don't get subordinate clauses necessarily in the optative as classical grammar would dictate. You do, but not all the time. There's not a lot of um, use of what we call the oblique cases. So Greek is very intricate because, as everybody knows, the nouns change their spelling to depending on nouns and adjectives, depending on how they're used grammatically in a sentence. We have a nominative when it's the noun, it's spelled a certain way, when it's the possessive or genitive, when it's the dative or indirect object, and when it's the accusative. But as this koine spread throughout the Mediterranean, and it became more accessible to millions of people, 
they began to use either reduplicative pair, uh, prepositions. So rather than just saying, I talk to you, and you would put uh, that soy in the dative, they would put para, they would put or pros or uh, a, a, an additional preposition to give you a second chance, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the cases are not so intricate. If you read Aeschylus or in poetry or Thucydides, those cases can mean a lot of different things. And it's very hard to know the exact complexion of them without help from, par- from prepositions. And so that's why, you know, you can take a sentence in Greek and it's two sentences in English. It's so concise and Tacitian, to use the, the Latin term. Tacitus is that way too. But my point is it's, it tries to help a person understand in every possible way that Greek language can be simplified. But it, it has a beautiful rhythm and tone to it. And it begins with, you know, in te arge ein hologo. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, from God. And it's more metaphysical, and it's trying to explain um, Christianity or, or God through the Trinity of the, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And the Holy Ghost is this logos, this rational plan for the universe uh, that is part of God's plan. And so when you look at the miracles, I think there's, there's not very many of them. There's you know, the raising of Lazarus from the dead and the feeding of the, of the hungry and walking on water, the famous ones, and turning water into wine. But they're not there to show you how powerful he is or he's, they're not there to show you that he is divine. They're there to show you the mystical powers of belief in God, that he can transcend the physical world and he can do things that, that don't make sense unless you believe in the Holy Ghost and the Holy Spirit, the, the manifestation of God in the physical corporal, corporal world on earth. So the Logos is kind of like the Holy Spirit. And so the whole Gospel of John, it doesn't, ha- it doesn't seem to be derivative of the archetype Mark in the way that Matthew and Luke were. And those three, the synoptic Gospels, are just different. And it's very valuable because it it has some information that you won't find in the three other Gospels. And just because it's the last one doesn't mean that it's inexact. Some of the topographical references when he's traversing the Holy Land are more accurate than the other Gospels. So whoever this group was that collectively wrote it or one person within these disciples of, of John, they had some pretty accurate information through the oral tradition that goes back to the life of Jesus. But more importantly, they had a, a mission to show people. The, the main purpose of, of John is to assure you that if you believe in the divinity of God as manifested through Jesus Christ, and you accept him as your Lord and Savior, then you will have everlasting water, the water of life. You will be saved in the next world. And that... There are times in John when that almost suggests, even if you are a sinner and you're not part of an organized religious cult or group or, or you know, uh, observant church, you can still have a relationship with this Holy Spirit, the Logos, and Jesus Christ as a window into God's will and plan, and you will be you will inherit everlasting life. 
So it's kind of a mystical, a direct appeal to a person. And it's from that gospel, I think, in some ways, uh, during the various manifestations of the later church, the Reformation, came up this modernist idea. And you heard it in the 60s. I, I, I can talk to God myself. I believe in Jesus Christ. I read the gospels. I follow uh, the Ten Commandments. And therefore, even though I haven't been baptized or had communion or whatever particular ritual, I can still go to heaven. That, there is areas in that gospel that would justify that. Yeah in a way that the other three are not concerned with it. Yeah. So I found that if I had students and I had them in um, one semester and I went through, let's say, two-thirds of Greek grammar and I was able to impart a vocabulary of a thousand words, they couldn't read Thucydides, obviously, and maybe they would struggle with Xenophon and Lysias. But if I gave them the New Testament, especially with American Bible Society, has a lexicon in the back... In fact, if the students had Latin, there is a wonderful edition where you have Latin from the Vulgate translation of Jerome on one page, and then you have John on the other, or the, all of the Gospels. So then I could have students, could, could if they get stuck in Greek, they look at Latin rather than just kind of a lobe English Greek. So I found that it was very effective. And then if, once in a while, I would offer it as an advanced class. And I learned a lot because I had some very devout Hispanic Catholic students that had gone to catechism in those days. And I had a lot of um, evangelicals. And so they would they were just fascinated by particular words and what they meant and how they were interpreted in, in the English versions that they'd read in church. So it was a pretty good class. It's a good thing to teach. I read it from now now and then just to not just to, to keep up with Greek, because it's, it's not the type of Greek that's going to... The vocabulary is different than classical Greek. So if you're going to sit down and you just want to relax and you want to read, say, John, not Luke, but say Mark or Matthew, but especially John, if you want to read it, you can read it about 50% of the rate of English. But if you really want to be taxed and you want to read classical Greek and even Xenophon and Lysias, it's a little slower. But if you want to read something like Polybius or... Thucydides, it's outside of the speeches. I mean, even the narrative is difficult mm -hmm. and it takes a lot. So it's a relaxing way to read Greek. Yeah. And then the content, of course, is why you read it. Do you think that the nature of the of John's um, gospel, the nature of the language and the words when it's translated into English, does it does it does it translate well? Is the English still is similar to that? Is it? Um, I think it's a little difficult. Um, when you read Luke, and all the world shall be tacked, all of, it's beautiful in English. The King James Version captures pretty well the elevated tone of the Greek. But when you read John, it's more, it's moving, and it's not bad Greek. It's just very easy to understand. It's colloquial almost. And yet the King James has an elevated translation that's a little bit two notches above what I think most people who read it, who were Aramaic speakers. It's designed for people in the, in the Holy Land, I think, but also in the evangelical movement, whose first language was in the Holy Land, Aramaic, and then maybe uh, Koine Greek. In other words, somebody in the Hellenistic, uh, what is now Asia Minor, or somebody down in Alexandria. 
who couldn't understand classical Greek very well, but they could understand Koine. It's written in Koine Greek. Koine yeah. Greek just means that the vocabulary is not as big. Uh, the classical rules of variatio, you don't repeat vocabulary or out the window. Um, there's a greater tendency to have an English word order. The sentences are, uh, you don't have a lot of purpose or result clauses that go on and on and subordination. So the, sen the sentences are maybe 15 to 20 words rather than 50. <laughs> yeah. There's no articular affinitives, very few, which are a way of denoting purpose in classical Greek. So, so you it's just much easier. It's, it's, uh, it, it replicates the spoken Koine language much more than classical Greek represents classical spoken Greek. Yeah. We so, know that because in Aristophanes' comedies, we see characters are speaking as if they're just alive. And, and to some degree in Euripides, too, when you have a stichomythia, two characters bantering back and forth, and you compare that with the narrative classical Greek, it's, it's pretty different. If you were an Athenian in 430 and you heard Pericles' funeral oration, it would be like somebody from Fresno trying to understand somebody read the Federalist Papers. It's that difficult. It's, it, that could not be understood by most Athenians, the way that that's composed. It was written by a brilliant stylist, Thucydides, but not to replicate, to imagine what he said or to convey what he said, but in a way that Thucydides would pick and choose how to make it more persuasive in his manner of writing and style and emphases. Yeah. So you're, you think that John was written so that non-Greek speakers could read it and, you know, they, they may not be Greek speakers, but they probably had some access to some of the Greek language. And so it was meant, meant for... Not a, just them. It would be people... Remember that... By the first century A.D., the locus of power in the Roman Empire, because of the acquisition from the Seleucids and from uh, the Attalids and from the Ptolemies and the inheritance of Alexander's kingdom, the biggest, most powerful and richest cities, say, in the first century A.D., were starting to be places like Alexandria and Antioch and, and Pergamum. And Ephesus, and no longer just, you know, Syracuse or uh, Rome or even New Carthage. So, uh, and those were speakers of Greek. Their first language was Greek. What was interesting to say in the 6th century AD in Constantinople under the Byzantines was that Justinian and Belisarus were actually Latin speakers. That was rare. The official language of the Eastern Empire, probably by the 4th or 5th century, fifth or sixth century was Greek and all the scientific work was in Greek and uh, so it, they're trying to take this Aramaic oral tradition and translate it into a common Greek with no affectation it's not like the second sophistic that's a fancy term for Roman scholars and students who in Roman times tried to write like Thucydides or classical Athenians with very very difficult to read them Alias Aristides is, is, is just out of classical Greek, even though he's a Roman. But my point is that it's written for two audiences, the Greek-speaking Eastern and majority of the empire, and especially for people uh, who are not Greek-speaking, but they have some knowledge of Greek, and that knowledge would allow them to understand a koine written Greek yeah. with some difficulty. Yeah.
So it was intended to um, spread the gospel. Spread the gospel. Evan, Evan, yeah, I mean, the gospel, I, and somebody will probably be listening because I'm doing this off the top of my head, but it's the spiel, that Germanic Anglo-Saxon word for news, and then um, good, got G-O-D in Anglo-Saxon early is, it's not related to uh, God, doesn't the word good and is not from God. They're two different roots, even though they sound almost the same. But it's from the root uh, good. So gospel is good news. And that is an Anglo-Saxon Germanic word to try to capture what they were known at, as. The gospels were known as evangelismos. Ev the E-U, we would say in English, good and evangelismos, an angelos is not an, just an angel. An angel is a messenger, a messenger of news. So these are good news. Yeah. These are things you can read that feel good and they're, and they're holy and they're upright. And so you read them. And then that was translated as gospel in the Middle Ages. Got it. Yeah. Well, thank you, Victor. Let's go ahead and take a break and then come back and talk a little bit more about the Department of Defense. Stay with us and we'll be right back. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. We're back, um, Victor. So I was recently looking at the Department of Defense has failed its audit audit for the sixth year in a row, and it can only pass seven of twenty nine components. So our you were re, you were talking about the terrible recruitment, but the DoD itself is just. I, I can't. It, it's a, it's shocking that they don't have to pass their audit, especially on more components than just seven. Yeah, I, I think we've got a big problem. I mean, if you look at some, we just had another crash of the Osprey. I know that in hours, total hours of use versus wrecks. Um, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's only three wrecks per hundred thousand hours of use, but it's too high. And that concept of a helicopter that turns into a plane was problematic. And yet they went ahead with it. The Marines did. The F-22 um, has been stopped at about, I don't know what it is, 170 planes. And even the F-35 is way over cost and we're not going to build as many of them. We had something called the littorial ship that was supposed to be able to operate in shallow waters, maybe even an amphibious. That's kind of scrapped. The latest um, Gerald Ford carrier, I think the price went up. They had a new type of catapult. It went up from something like $12 billion to $14 billion. So what these audits would show if they were there is that whatever the Pentagon says that this is the price and what they need is not going to be the eventual cost. And then when they say they need so many platforms, they're never going to get as many platforms. 
And so what, what one World War II was, we were able to make thousands of B-24s, B-17s, even B-29s cheaply. And, and they were easy to operate. And we had 12 million people. But when you have a military that's at the smallest number since uh, World War II, we are doubling down on these very, very expensive, very scarce weapon systems. So when you lose an F-35, you're losing 100 million bucks. If you lose an F-22, you're losing 140 million. And you don't have very many people, but we're facing enemies now that are turning out, churning out $100,000 drones, thousands of them. And so when these Houthis send over all these drones that are Iranian or Chinese designed, they cost about 100,000 bucks. And they may have, you know, three or four hundred pounds of explosive. They can take make a big hole. And we're spending three or four million dollars with sophisticated guided missiles that take them down. And that's the whole point. So if you had an outside audit that looked at weapons acquisitions and the need for them and the utility and how many hours of maintenance versus operation like we used to. I mean, after all, that's how Harry Truman became vice president. He was on a war munitions audit board and he was looking at aircraft engines that were defective and etc and so how do you how do you rectify that and i know i'm going to get a lot of people angry that some of them i greatly admire but i do think that we have to have a window that if you're a two three four star general admiral and you retire you cannot for four or five years be a lobbyist or a defense contractor board because they're not hiring you for your brilliance and thinking up of a weapon system. They have people to do that. They're hiring you because of your contacts in the Pentagon in acquisitions, deployment, and they want, you know, Northrop versus Raytheon versus, uh, I don't know, Lockheed versus general dynamics they want their guy to compete with the other guy's guy to get a contract and you've got to have an audit you got to stop all that no more revolving doors i mean lloyd austin came right out of raytheon like it's not good no i'm not suggesting he's done anything wrong i have no idea whether he has i doubt he has but i'm just thinking that you can't ask a person who's getting, you know, several hundred thousand, if not several million dollars a year to be in the Pentagon when he sees his former employer with a weapon system to be disinterested when he knows he's going to go back and work for him when he's done. It just it's crazy. So they need to have an audit. They need to audit manpower. They need to look at. I mean, look at the chief recruitment officer for the Air Force. I won't even mention his name. All he did was harangue pilots that were white males. We've got 85%, you know, our pilots are not going to look like them. And he, he just kind of destroyed the idea of merit. And then he retired. Oh, I did that. I'm gone. With my, you know, my lucrative retirement. And so there's no accountability. Yeah. And that's why, you know, uh, that's another, I don't want to beat another dead horse, but if you have a uniform code of military justice, and you're going you're gonna to can or court-martial a enlisted man who takes a picture of a submarine and he happens to have the console in it and he sends it to his wife. And that's disclosing top-secret information. And it is. And then you're going to have generals who, who violate the same code of military be, uh, behavior when they disparage publicly, serially, insidiously 
the commander in chief and they use words like Nazi and liar and Russian puppet. And what, what did Hayden, the retired Air Force general, said he, that Trump is like Auschwitz in, the, in his border policy? Well, there's, there's a big problem there. and We've got yeah. to look at it. Yeah. And then you look at the military academies and they have these woke programs. And part of the problem, to tell you the truth, is when you talk to high ranking officers, they're very loyal to the military and they should be. and They're very good, but they feel they're not in a position to be critical. And they're not. And they're not. Yeah. And so I think you need an audit of recruitment. You need an audit of uh, who is leaving the military and why and why people, which demographic is not re-enlisting and why and which weapon system is being chosen and why. And we got to get away from this idea of multi, multi-million dollar platforms, uh, whether vehicles or rockets or uh, aircraft and very few of them that we cannot afford to use or we can't afford to lose. Where we need cheap weapons, a lot of them, and automatic. We need, we should be blanketing the Pacific with submarine drones, with surface craft drones, with air drones. You know what I'm saying? That's what our enemies are doing. Yeah. I, I want to turn then to Lee Smith had a really fine article in Tablet. It was titled The Global Empire of Palestine, and it, he was looking at the support, not just the Palestinians themselves, but that throughout the world there was all these protests, and that was part of their empire as he had it. And he comes to um, near the end where he says that once this crushing military defeat has been suffered by the Palestinians, the United States, Europe, and the Gulf Arab states are going to just go in there and revitalize them. And he says this about that, and I thought it was very interesting. By continually revitalizing the Palestinians, by giving them new life, the stewards of global affairs have engendered something that by definition cannot survive in nature on its own, a society that celebrates death as its highest value. And I was wondering if you had some um, reflections on that. Well, you know, after the Six-Day War, I think uh, the PLO was formed a couple of years before that. And then Arafat was ahead of that Fatah. Then they made him, after the Six-Day War, I think it was, the head of the PLO. And that's when we started to see the global phenomenon of Palestinian hijackings and terrorism over the loss of the 67 war and the acquisition of the West Bank and Sinai, etc. And then all of the attacks in Europe, Munich, etc. And from that moment on, we've had a half a century of people from Gaza and the Middle East and Libya and Arab countries, and bin Laden is the greatest example, who have terrorized the West and terrorized you know, autocratic East uh, Middle East countries, especially the uh, oil-rich Gulf kingdoms. So my point is that when you ask yourself, why are the Palestinians coddled? Why are we giving money to Hamas? Why is the UN in favor of Hamas? Why are they giving so much money that when, when you look at that, gosh, when you look at 
there was a picture the other day of an earth mover <laughs> in Gaza. I mean, they were taking the most sophisticated British and German technology and drilling holes as if they were going through the Swiss Alps. And where does all that money come from and why does it come? And the answer, of course, is it's dangled. It's a bribe. It's blood money. It's we're going to give you all this and you're going to behave and don't hurt us. And every once in a while... It's just like the mafia that goes around to, you know, mom and pop stores in the 1940s and says, here's your monthly check. And if you don't pay, then you might, you know, have a fire. Well, if you don't pay us this money, you might have a terrorist incident, especially in places like France. Yeah. So they and they shake down this money and then they did something very brilliant. They uh, in the last 20 years, the Gulf Kingdoms, and I just mean the Emirates, but especially Qatar, Saudi, Saudi, Kuwaitis, they wanted to be protected as well from Palestinians and Hamas and Islamic Jihad and Muslim Brotherhood. So they began lavishing Western universities, but in particular American universities and not Cal State Fresno, I'm talking Stanford, Harvard, Princeton, Yale. Uh, Duke, places where they had prestige and they turned out the nation's next generation of diplomats, military, a whole elite. And they started creating these huge Middle Eastern programs. And then these Middle Eastern programs got students and they proselytized and got American students. They were the conduit for hundreds of thousands of people on scholarships that come from the Middle East that paid tuition. The universities loved it. And the next thing you know, they they institutionalized the idea that the Israelis were horrible people and settlers and interlopers and the Palestinians were noble victims. Yeah. And nobody ever said, wait a minute. Why are they the only refugees? You know what? I shouldn't say nobody. Did you see Sammy Robert, Robert Kennedy on Bill Maher? Yes, I did. That oh, was my brilliant. God. Yes. I had never seen a politician speak. Or No, it wasn't Bill Maher. It was CNN. And he just shredded that host. I have never seen a politician be so blunt and honest. And he just tore apart Hamas. And she, she gave all the boilerplate stereotype little rejoinders, and he just ruined them yep he did he said they could have been singapore they have you've seen the beaches they have billions of dollars why are they the only refugees why is a million or a million jews that were ethnically cleansed for the middle east they're not refugees you know why aren't cypriots refugees why aren't armenians that were expelled from turkish why aren't greeks that were ethnically cleansed out of asia minor and why aren't germans that were forced marched out of prussia but why are they the only refugees and why are why are the israelis the only one who have to be proportionate did anybody at harvard did colin gray say you know what it is october 7th and they went in and murdered over 1,100 men, women, children, mostly unarmed civilians, raped them, mutilated, decapitated them, committed necrophilia, put babies in ovens. And the IDF hasn't done anything. It's now October 27th. They still haven't replied. It's been three weeks. But we're still going to condemn them for being disproportionate. And they're settlers. And that and that that's because she understands where the the locus of power is, as I said earlier. Yeah. But it, it it'll all stop if people say, you know what, we're not going to do it anymore. And if you come over here from the Middle East and you commit a felony, you're going to go back immediately. We're going to rip. We're going to lift your student visa. 
And we're going to stop accepting money from foreign donate, just like we shut down the Confucius Institutes, which are resurfacing under different names because they were fronts for communist China. And we're not going to let people who work for the Iranian government come here and teach at universities. It'd be like in 1945 asking, you know, I don't know, you would ask Alfred Rosenberg to come over here and lecture on genetics at Harvard from the not from the Third Reich. Or I don't know. It just doesn't make any sense. No. And when they look at this, I think everybody has to understand that our magnanimity, magnanimity is not winning admiration. They hate us for it. They look at that and they say, what decadent people. If I were them and I said this about them or if somebody said this about me the way that I've said this about them, I would go ballistic and I would respect people for that. Yeah. And that's what, you know, they can they can call Trump a dictator, but, you know, you just get down to the reductionist man on the street. And when they look at those four years, they say, hmm, Iran didn't do anything, did they? Soleimani lost his life. Did they do anything? Nope. Who the Houthis, were they... Uh, Destroying Red Sea navigation and commerce? No. Was Vladimir Putin going into trying to have a thunder road into Kiev? No. No, 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 no. Was ISIS uh, bragging about beheading on TV with making people wear jump shoots so they cut off their heads? No. They stopped that. And was uh, North Korea saying, I'm going to take out Portland? No, they'll take out Seattle. No, 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 no. Was he sending missiles over Japan? No. Was Mr. Obrador bragging about greenlighting millions of people? Ha, ha, ha. We lost the Mexican War, but now we're winning. Ha, 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 ha. No. He was afraid of getting out of NAFTA. He was afraid of big taxes on remittances. And so that should tell you something about human nature, that there is such a thing called deterrence. Yeah. And they know it, too. And... You know, Donald Trump may have, you know, erred by being a little bit crude in his tweets, but he saved a lot of lives by restoring deterrence and de Biden destroyed it yeah. and people died. A lot of people died. Yeah. I, you know, and when I was reading about the DOD, it said that the DOD was forced into these audits in 2017 when Donald Trump was in and that for two decades before they hadn't been doing it. So just to give Donald Trump another chalk one up for him. Right. He's well, a business person. Yeah. And he was trying to he was always bragging how he renegotiated the helicopters for, you know, Helicopter One and Air Force One. And. They Again, I, I've said this on these broadcasts, but the problem that we're having is the left looks at all this and they're looking at Trump and they're saying, oh, my God, we impeached that SOB two times in his first term. The moment he lost his majority, my God, we tried him as a private citizen. Oh, my God, we created this whole Russian collusion hoax and ate up 22 months of his administration. Oh, my God, we we won that election with it right before the debate. We got away with having a bunch of lying 51 intelligence authorities claiming that Hunter's authentic laptop was Russian disinformation. Oh, my God. We took a buffoonish riot and turned it into the greatest insurrection in American history. Yeah, we've done all this. We had. And guess what? He's and now we're 
we, we raided his house over this dispute over classified documents. And now we've got four prosecutors and the guy's still alive. And we haven't killed him or bankrupt him or driven him insane. And he's leading the Republican pack and he's polling at least ahead of Joe Biden. If I was Donald Trump and I had suffered that from us and I was a viable candidate for the president, I know what we Democrats would do. The moment we got in there, we would make these people pay. So he must, he has to think just like we do. And actually he doesn't. And that's why yeah. they call him a dictator and they're going crazy right now. Well, I would like to end this um, episode on a high note. So I'm going to go down the hunter rabbit hole for just one that's second. <laughs> well, the Bidens are trying to suggest that James Comer's 160 acre farm is like Hunter <laughs> Biden's shell companies. And I was wondering if you had at least a defense of, of James Comer on that that. Accusation. You know, I had a, I had a, <laughs> I, when the Iraq war got really heated, I, you know, I said the surge was going to work and I supported David Petraeus and all that. And I got in big trouble and I had some journalists come out and one of them wrote something about, I'm going to interview Victor Hansen. He called me up and said, I hear you have your family has 180 acres and when he doesn't know anything about California farmland and, you know, that 10,000 acres, 100,000 acres is impressive. Yes. 180, 180 acres shared by five separate families turns out to be 35 acres per family. (laughs) So this person, I won't even tell you their gender or the newspaper they came out. So they came out with a story and they asked me, and I said, you know, this is going to be very interesting. And they said, we want to meet all of your Mexican servants and all this. And they didn't meet any. Right. And then they saw people who working side by side with my brother, my kids that happened to be Mexican, making the same salary as my children and working side by side. And they looked around and they saw these decrepit buildings and my house was falling apart and. Everybody had old cars. I had like seven wrecked cars in the driveway. And and this person says, instead of thinking, we can't write the story, she said, I shouldn't say she, this is pathetic. Oh, man, as if I was a loser. You know, she got even (laughs) happier. She didn't write the story. She went back and wrote something about me that I was a nut. But she didn't say that I was an exploitive anti-Cesar Chavez grasping farmer, but more or less that I was a failure. And, that you know, it's kind of like Mitt Romney when he ran. They all had this Bain Capital that he put, you know, that he has a picture with dollar bills. And then that didn't really work. So then they, <laughs> they started writing articles that, well, compared to a normal Wall Street multi-billionaire, he only made 500 million. He's a <laughs> failure. He thinks he's rich. That's the way the left is, man. We get you just scrape a tiny little millimeter off that fake veneer and you get under who they really are and you start to see some pretty dark places. And one of them is not all, but a lot of people become left because they're overeducated and they're rhetorical and they don't have the money they think they deserve. And they have a unquenchable thirst for material things. 
They want label clothes. They want label cars. They want label kids. They want label degrees. They want the whole expensive granite counters, the whole kitchen stuff. And they let that out. And they have contempt for people people who don't have that. They really do. (laughs) I've I've met so many snobbish left-wing people and acquisitive. Yes, and status-seeking, of course. (laughs) I've met so many academic Marxists that, I've been in meetings where they argued for three hours over $50 of travel money. Who's going to get it? And I've well, had so many people are talking about, I remember it was Ronald Reagan, is it, you know, all of his, in, you know, Henry Salvatore and all these people. And then you'd go out in the parking lot and they'd have this, you know, this <laughs> really expensive Bobo that they couldn't afford. And they would, and they would be smiling as they waved to you as they drove out. I'm in a Bobo. <laughs> exactly. That's, well, that's the academic mind. That's what you're dealing with, partly, these pseudo-Marxists. Yeah. And uh, it's all about, you know, it, it's... Is that what James Comer's dealing with? I, I think his farm is going just fine. James Comer? Yeah, Comer's he fine. He doesn't have any money. It's, no, I know it's no money, but it, and, and it's a perfectly an ex, legitimate he, business. He, he, I think he was an ex, <laughs> ex-financial officer at a bank. Yeah. He knows that's why he's good at what he does. He says, follow the money. He knows if you write a check and put on the, <laughs> the little left-wing line at the bottom of the check, loan repayment, then you have to ha- actually have a loan to exist, and he can't find one. <laughs> I think everybody who gets salary can just say loan repayment. Yeah, <laughs> I don't exactly. have to report it. That's another thing that gets me really angry. And I think a lot of people listening get really angry. That SOB Biden, excuse me, he went around the country and he did all those intonations of pay your fair share. You got to pay your fair share. What's wrong with paying your fair All I'm asking is. And then he did that creepy little, I'm just saying pay your fair share. <laughs> and it was creepy. Yes. And then while he was saying that, his daughter w- wasn't paying her taxes. His son wasn't paying his taxes. He wasn't paying his taxes. His brother wasn't paying his taxes. His sister wasn't paying his taxes. But pay your fair share. <laughs> and then, he, you know, yeah. And then he said, I'm going to, I'm going to unite us. I'm going to bring back normal Values and standards. I, I talked to a friend I really like. I won't mention any detail. I really like him. And I asked him who he was going to vote for. He said Biden. I said, why are you going to vote for Biden? Because he's going to bring back standards and values again. And I thought, oh, boy, about a year into it, I thought, mm, values. You blow on little girl's hair. You call them out. Your, your daughter's diary surfaces where you took a shower when she was 12 or something. That's normal. And he's normal. And there's Mr. Brit is normal and topless trans people and twerking rabbit costume at Easter is normal. Yeah. And come on, give me a break. And United, when he got that Phantom of the Opera set with all the red lights and satanic glow, and then he started doing that ultra mega semi fascist Phantom of the Opera speech, and we're going to bring everybody together. Don't believe that stuff. No, absolutely not. Well, Victor, we're at the end of the show by a lot. You know what? I know so, one last oh, thing. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Two last things. Is, yeah. and I felt bad for Melania. I mean, everybody said, well, how can you feel bad? She's a monk. But she really tried to do that Christmas thing. Yeah. I mean, it was really tasteful. Yes. And she was trying to communicate. And when you look back at her first ladyship, she tried to bring taste. She wasn't arrogant. You remember when... 
I think I have this right, and you listeners know better than I do, but I have a vague recollection that when a first lady is at the inauguration, she gives a gift ceremoniously to the incoming so that Laura Bush gave a present to Michelle Obama. Uh Well, when Trump was outgoing, Melania, I think, gave some type of crystal, you know, or a very nice, expensive gift to Michelle. And she went on a talk show and gave me like, huh, what am I supposed to do with this? I'm supposed to think I, 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 what, I didn't even know what to do with it. Whoever thought this up? She was just lying. She yeah. got one herself. And I, I thought that was, you know, I thought it was really bad. Yeah, it was. And uh, they did, they treated yeah, Melania. A, it, they treated her really terribly. Terrible. Yeah. And then next time, you know, we, we were going in order with the Odyssey. I want to do, he's a, he's a very under, uh, estimated oral poet. I, I shouldn't say that. He's famous, of course, 2,700 years ago, but I thought I would do the works and days. Okay. And then we'll get into Greek lyric poetry and then the great triad of Sophocles, Euripides, and Aeschylus. That sounds and good. And we're going to work all the way down to Hemingway and Faulkner and Thomas Wolfe and wow, yeah, that Joseph fun. Conrad, my favorite novelist. Yeah, so we'll start... It will be our New Year episode next weekend. (laughs) We'll be alive. Don't worry. Yeah. (laughs) All right. We're going to do famous works of literature, and then maybe if we're still alive, we'll do famous generals in history. Yeah. Um, Victor, thanks to our audience, and thanks to you. That was a wonderful discussion of the the Gospels, um, just really informative and different for our Christmas celebration. So, Merry we, Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas, everybody. This is Sammy Wink and Victor Davis Hansen, and we're signing off. <laughs> <laughs>